This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Rianne from Stories of Win, and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Christy Fowler. She is an associate professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at University of California, Irvine, as well as the director of the Interdepartmental Neuroscience Program at UC Irvine. Um, and her lab studies the underlying mechanisms um, that regulate motivated behaviors, as well as behavioral deficits related to neuropsychiatric diseases. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. Thank you. Um, so we kind of like to begin by just um, kind of starting from the beginning of your career. What made you kind of interested in neuroscience and uh, the brain? Okay. Uh, so first of all, thank you for inviting me to come. Um, I'm excited to share my story. Uh, and I think that this is great because I think everybody's story is so unique. And it's uh, great to understand that there's no one specific trajectory for somebody um, to get to kind of, you know, where they are, you know, in their future career. And so, um, yeah, so I was, uh, I started off at a small liberal arts college in Ohio that nobody has ever heard of. I'm sure uh, Baldwin Wallace College. Um, and uh, I really loved neuroscience, um, you know, when I was there, um, but it really didn't come until the uh, junior year that I was there. And that's because the small college I was at just didn't have any neuroscience professors. And so right. uh, I was really interested in psychology and clinical psychology. And then um, uh, Dr. Andrew Mickley came my uh, junior year, and uh, he kind of brought this idea of neuroscience and looking at the brain more in depth, um, and that was really exciting to me. But because I was on that, you know, really clinical psychology track, um, I really thought that that was what I wanted to do. And even though neuroscience was really fascinating, um, I still, you know, was really interested in, you know, kind of things of the mind and in really severe diseases uh, such as, you know, schizophrenia or people who were uh, suicidal with depression or Alzheimer's disease. And uh, so when it came time to apply for graduate programs, um, I had applied for clinical psychology programs and I mm -hmm. thought, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and having, you know, limited guidance on kind of how to apply for a program or yeah. what to do, uh, I, I really didn't understand the application process. Um, and so in my applications, I, you know, said something like, I I just think, you know, the human mind is amazing and I want to help people. And uh, that's certainly not what you want to say in an application um, because <laughs> it's very undirected. And <laughs> these are things I've come to realize, you know, later on in my career. Um, anyway, so I didn't get accepted into any programs. Um, and it was really, you know, it was, it was really depressing. It was sad. You know, was, that was my goal. And so uh, during that time, I took a year off and I really thought, you know, let me just expand on my experiences and see what it is that really excites me. What do I really love to do? So I spent uh, summer volunteering in a geriatric psychiatric ward um, wow. in which patients, yeah, patients had like really severe Alzheimer's disease, um, very severe mental disorders. And I came to realize that there really wasn't much that people can do for them that, you know, I would go in and I would play bingo or we would do art therapy. Um, and that was really the extent of the therapy that they were given just because there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any treatments available for people who were at the far spectrum, which is what I was really interested in. 
Um, and so that's where I kind of started thinking more about how can I have a really big impact on, you know, the populations that I really was, you know, caring a lot about and really wanting to help. And so that's where I kind of circled back around to neuroscience and being able to identify different targets in the brain, um, looking at, you know, developing different therapeutics, you can have a much larger impact on society than you can, you know, just being, uh, you know, in the office and treating one patient, you know, each hour or whatnot. So. Um, so that turned me around a bit. I also uh, worked at a group home uh, with adults uh, who had a severe uh, mental disability. And so uh, with that, you know, it was, again, it was a really enjoyable experience. I worked with some amazing people, amazing, yeah. um, you know, uh, people to take care of, but also other amazing people that I worked with. Uh, but we would just provide basic care. So um, giving showers, uh, cooking dinners, making sure everybody got up in the morning, <laughs> uh, went to bed at night, uh, those types of things. Um, and, you know, it was something where I really enjoyed it again, but again, I didn't really see myself doing that the rest of my life. And so, um, Having taken that time off and done a lot of doing a lot of self-reflection, um, I then really refocused into neuroscience. Um, so being able to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, look at look at things in a different perspective than what I was had been used to with a psychology right. degree. Um, yeah. How is it? Um, how did you get to like from there to then, I guess, kind of basic neuroscience yeah, so I think I was very naive again. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, my parents had a um, a house down in uh, Florida, and I thought, well, you know, it'd be nice to live in Florida. So I I, I started looking at colleges at you know graduate schools in Florida, uh, and I really liked Tallahassee, and so I ended up applying to Florida State University, and that was um, like the only graduate program I applied to because I really wanted to go there, and I really wow. liked the program. I thought it was uh, really, um, you know, there's a lot of different research interests that really inspired me there. Um, however, when I was interviewing, I was really interested in uh, women's health. And uh, I had my eye on one faculty that I really was excited to work with. And um, I have to thank the graduate students <laughs> for intervening um, and, you know, talking about her mentorship style. And so mm -hmm. that I um, kind of took a step back. And I, at that point, I realized that mentorship style was really important. And if I was going to be in a lab for five years, I wanted to work with a mentor that I felt, you know, that we communicated well with, and that yeah. was on the same wavelength as me, as far as like what my future goals were and how, uh, what I needed to succeed. And so then I was, uh, Put on the track of uh, Zushin Wong's lab, and he was a uh, new faculty, so I was his first graduate student. Um, so it was a little bit of a risk for me to take on him, but it was also a risk for him to take on me because I really didn't have a lot of research experiences. Um, I had taken a couple of courses in my junior and senior year uh, where I was able to conduct research in the laboratory on laboratory animals, but it was very basic. Um, you know, does this drug Persitam alter learning memory in a water maze? And we had maybe eight animals and that was the extent. Uh, so uh, he took a risk on me. And um, years later, I asked him why. <laughs> why did Aww. you take a risk on me? <laughs> and uh, he said it was, it was really, it just came down to um, uh, my personality. And he felt that he could really work with me as well. And so we were at a faculty dinner. And, you know, um, I wanted to go talk to him, but I was super nervous, you know, because he's this like really important professor. <laughs> <Of> <laughs> and <course>. so... <laughs> Yeah, right. 
like, oh my gosh, I can't possibly talk to him. Um, but I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to suck it up and do it. And what's the worst that could happen? Um, and so I went to talk to him and I talked to, about his research. He, you know, conducted research on meadow and prairie looking at uh, monogamous and promiscuous behavior. Mm. And uh, he had a side project looking at adult neurogenesis, uh, which I really found fascinating. And so just from our scientific conversation at that one dinner, um, he really, you know, that was enough for him to take a chance on me. And so I was always really appreciative of that um, opportunity that he gave me. And um, so I had the grades, you know, in my small undergraduate university, I had a 4.0, but I I had none other research. And um, it makes me realize now seeing applications coming through that, you you know, it's really important to be um, holistic and think about everybody's you know, characteristics that can contribute to their success. And that it's not a recipe of how many publications you've had or how many abstracts you've had. Um, that yeah. doesn't really determine future potential, you know, as much as some of these other things can go into factor. So, yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think there's so much to just to fit and also just personality type, not even just in a lab, but like, as a scientist, there are people that have great grades or have been able to just like succeed when they're in a very specific environment, but you like put them in a graduate school program and can be very different. And you're asked to kind of, you know, work with others a lot versus maybe being given one specific thing to do as like a, um, as a student or something. So I think it's, it's huge to look at people beyond just their CVs really. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that ability, as you mentioned, the ability to collaborate and work well with others is so essential in science. And, um, you know, I think I'd like to think that all scientists are, you know, awkward in some way, (laughs) like kind of nerdy, nerdy, awkward in our own right. And everybody's a little different in that nerdy awkwardness scale. Um, And so we don't always like to, you know, be around other people all the time, but, I think part of that is, you know, finding um, the excitement through the science um, and yeah. overcoming that awkwardness to where, um, you know, if, if we're speaking the same language, which is science, um, you know, it, it could really have some exciting conversations and be really fruitful. So, yeah, yeah. So in your graduate work, so you looked at adult neurogenesis um, in Prairie Bowl. So uh, what exactly was it? you know, in those that are maybe either monogamous or paired or like how did, how was that kind of uh, work, uh, I guess, performed and uh, designed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we looked at um, behaviors, so monogamous behaviors. So the prairie bulls will mate. um, And so if a male and a female mate, um, they'll form a pair bond. And so how you test that later is that you attach them to different cages and either the male or female can freely roam. uh, And then you'll see, you know, if they are pair bonded, then they'll spend time with the partner that they had previously mated with. um, and so we uh, looked at that a bit. We also looked at the effects of like estrogen and testosterone on adult neurogenesis mm-hmm. um, and what receptors were involved, what mechanisms were involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were among the first to show that adult neurogenesis does just doesn't occur in the hippocampus and olfactory bulb. So that was kind of heresy at the time. <laughs> but nobody wanted to admit that neurogenesis was possible in other like cortical regions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that was something that was really exciting to be on this cutting edge of the field where um, it was hard at times because you'd go to conferences and people would, uh, you know, arg- want to argue with you, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and at the day, you're like, well, these are my data, right? The data are yeah. the data. And, you know, that's that's the evidence. And so I really learned that, you know, uh, scientific evidence is really the power that we have in what we do. 
And, you know, people can feel different ways, but it all comes down to the science um, to be able to, you know, if, when you see it in front of your eyes, you can't really object. Um, so that was great um, because I, you know, through different conferences, I learned how to like self-advocate and advocate for my yeah. science, which I think is really important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So from that graduate work, was there something that, um, how did you kind of it, it inform your next steps of what you wanted to do? Um, so um, kind of did, kind of didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to first disclose that when I was in graduate school, I would tell everybody, oh, I just want to be a small liberal arts teacher. That's what I wanted. And that's what I thought my future was. I had such an amazing time in my, you know, liberal arts college. And that's, I just thought that was amazing to be able to educate students and to be at that level of, you know, really hands-on in a small type classroom. Um, And so I would say that openly (laughs) during my like committee meetings and with faculty and I would get, you know, admonished saying like, that's not something that we talk about. You know, the only acceptable career option is to be faculty at a big research one university. Um, and other than that, it's failure. And so, you you know, don't set your goals in failure. Right. Um, and I was like, well, you know, maybe that's failure to you, but that's like success to me. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, so my, uh, uh, faculty mentor, Sozu Shin, allowed me, uh, he gave me a lot of flexibility and he really respected my thoughts and my feelings. Um, and we had many discussions where maybe he didn't agree with me, <laughs> where we agreed to disagree. But at yeah. the end of the day, um, you know, he supported me in the decisions that I wanted to make. And so I was able to take education courses and get a minor in college teaching um, when I was a graduate student. Um, and so he gave me the time and the opportunity to do that. And then I also, um, you know, while I was doing that and refining my teaching skills, um, I was also publishing a lot. So he really supported me with publishing. Um, He really supported me with grantsmanship and writing a grant, submitting my own NRSA, which at the time, you know, as a graduate student, you might think like, oh, well, why am I, why do I have to bring in my own money? You know, why can't the PI just pay me, right? Um, But at the end of the day, like those are the skills that you need to succeed in your future. And so that's why, that's why it's important. It's not important to get the money. It's important to develop those skills to be successful for the future. Um, And so Zushin really allowed me to develop like all these skills across these different domains of future Mm -hmm. careers. Uh, And so, you know, I didn't see it at the time, (laughs) but, you know, I'm really grateful to him that he, you know, he would also nominate me to go give talks at conferences Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So um, tremendously supportive. And so um, I know after I finished graduate school, I knew that I needed to do a postdoc because everybody mm-hmm. needs a postdoc nowadays. You know? <laughs> in the 50s and 60s, you know, I've been told it wasn't necessary. But nowadays, you know, um, if you want to have if you want to do anything research related in the future, you really need that postdoc. And I wasn't sure at that time. I knew I wanted to be a small liberal arts college, but I wasn't sure if I was going to be doing research or if it would just be only teaching. And so um, so. I have a um, personal family history uh, with multiple sclerosis. And so my mom mm. and my uncle both have MS. And so mm. I was really passionate about MS research. And I really wanted to do that research to kind of, you know, help them find a cure and to, uh, you know, every time you go home, I don't know if you get this, but you go home and your parents are like, well, what are you doing now? And like, well, why is that important? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, so some, I guess some, somewhere within me, I wanted to have that validation of like doing yeah. something that was important to my family. Right. And helping them dr- more directly. 
Yeah. And so, um, so I, I went to my postdoc at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, and I really was focused on doing that. And I uh, really directed my time um, into, you know, I did, I was in like the confocal room all the time and really getting data and working on human tissue. That was this rapid mm-hmm. autopsy protocol. So you get a call in the middle of the night to wow. come and get come and get the tissue. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was really cool and amazing. Yeah. experience. Um, but, you know, a couple of things kind of, I began to realize when I was there. So first of all, I, I forgot to mention that when I was in graduate school, uh, I had my son. And so, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, breastfeeding while I'm writing up my dissertation. And you know, uh, I think my son was like three months old when I defended my dissertation and my parents wow. were in the back of the room with them in a stroller, you know, it was really special. <laughs> Um, and so then, uh, and then my, I was really grateful for my Zushin as well, because he, uh, gave me time at the end, like, as I was finishing my dissertation, I had a couple of manuscripts to submit. And so he let me uh, stay home with, for a couple of months with my son in the early years when I was writing the manuscripts and that kind of thing. And so that was really, he was very family friendly in that respect and very supportive. And, um, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so then I, so I go to this postdoc and, you know, um, so my parents were there in an RV, you know, helping me with my son and they would like babysit in the, you know, during the day when I had to go to work. Um, we had tried a, you know, child care facility. It was really tough um, mm-hmm. to find one that was like you felt comfortable with. Uh, I did yeah. find one, you know, I put my son in it. It was the one associated with the clinic and they have like observation days so I drop them off at the daycare and then I go into observe and during my observation he picks up this uh, plastic bottle and starts playing with it um he gets <laughs> he got ended up like gnawing off a piece of the tape that was on the outside of it oh. and it's choking on the tape oh my gosh um, and I'm supposed to be sitting back and not intervening with anything but none of the you know the care workers were around oh. Um, and so as I'm seeing this, so then obviously I get up, I rush over, I grab him. Yeah. I, I dig all the way in his throat to get this, you know, tape out. Um, and at that point in time, it was just like this, <laughs> you know, like, I can't leave him here. I can't yeah, leave him. So of I course. The, yeah, I went to the director. I asked for my deposit back. You know, I said, this is, you know, I just can't. I'm if This is like a one-off like okay but like I just I won't feel safe leaving my son here yeah um so I was very fortunate and that my parents were retired and so they came up with the RV and they would stay at a you know a park nearby and watch mm-hmm. my son for me um uh, but the other kind of aspect of that is one night we got a call at you know three in the morning that we had a uh, a donation coming in you know and, and so mm-hmm. the body was coming and all the information I was given it was that it was a couple driving an RV and that there was this terrible accident and the woman had MS and uh-huh. so you know I immediately just flashed to my mom. Um, uh-huh. And so then I went in, it wasn't my mom, you know, Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah. but like that, that wow. experience kind of made it too personal for me. And so yeah. that's, at that point I realized that, you know, the research, I was really passionate about it. It was really important, but it was just a little bit too 
personal for me. And I also realized along the way that when I was doing the research that um, I was having a hard time because I wanted like the absolute proof. And I went, yeah. okay, I did experiment this way. Now I want to do it this way. And my PI would get super frustrated with me. And I'd be like, no, I want to do it this way too. And I, did, I just want to make sure like 110% that this yeah. is right. It's so important to me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I realized that having, you know, that maybe if we're really passionate about something, maybe we shouldn't be doing research on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because we could become overly obsessed with it in a respect. And then my, you know, my uh, PI was very uh, focused on hours, hours in the lab, less on Mm -hmm. productivity. um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if we had to go take our son, you know, to an appointment, it was a struggle to be able to get the time off, uh, you know, through the PI. Um, And it was more of a situation of, you know, um, you know, it's either science or family and you can't do both. So make a decision. And so at the end of the year with everything kind of coming together um, and the fact too, I realized in a postdoc, like you want to earn, you want to kind of get skills that'll take you to the next step that you can do and like branch off from there. And this rapid autopsy protocol, while it was like super amazing to be part of, like you can't do that everywhere. <laughs> and yeah. so I was really limiting my future career options mm. by doing something that was so, you know, specific and I can only do it at a couple of places in the world, basically. Um, so, yeah, so at that point I ended my, I terminated my postdoc after a year. Um, I would say also the other thing was the, my PI, um, I, you know, when I was interviewing, I expressed interest in applying for NRSA, postdoctoral NRSA. And then when I got to the lab, you know, he, he said he would support me in that. But when I got to the lab, he said I was fully funded. And so I didn't need to apply for the NRSA mm-hmm. postdoc. And for me, it was more my career development and less of the funding. Um, but he was really focused on the funding. And, you know, I can understand it now being a PI, you have limited time to direct any which yeah. way. And so it's easier to have somebody come in that you have a lot of funding for them and not have to work with them on writing a grant, which can be a, take a lot of the PI's time. And so um, I also felt that, you know, I really wanted to be someplace where I can apply for grants a little bit easier. So, um, so then that, at that point, um, and then I guess on top of that is like culmination of things, my son was getting sick a lot. And so, uh, you know, it was, kind of that guilt mom guilt <laughs> coming into play as well. Um, so after a year, I decided to quit the postdoc um, and really pursue the teaching a little bit more. And so I took time off um, and I went and lived with my parents down in Florida. And uh, so that was tough moving back home <laughs> you know, with a husband and a son, you know, a <laughs> uh, little awkward. Uh, my, my family's really supportive. So it was okay. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so, uh, so down there, then I, um, I started teaching at a small liberal arts college, the so Florida Atlantic University Honors College, uh, teaching psychology courses and neuroscience courses. Um, and then I also taught at a, um, a community college, um, which was a really great experience. Um, and then I taught at a high school that had a college level courses. So I really, you know, got exposed to all these different populations of students. So at the high school, it was these super motivated students. They weren't quite, you know, at the level of maturity, perhaps as, right. you know, <laughs> at, at, <laughs> at undergraduate level, but they were still really dedicated um, students at the um 
you know, the community college level, uh, it was, there was a lot of students that had, you know, families, they had like multiple jobs, uh, and they, you know, um, had limited time to really spend doing outside work. Uh, and so learning to ad adapt to all these different, you know, circumstances, I think, you know, that was one of the things I learned in those experiences as far as teaching and that, you know, you really need to support students in different ways, um, yeah. depending on, you know, who they are, where they're coming from, what their background is. And it's not just a one size fits all, you know, come into a class, have the same like routine in your head for every, you know, every lecture. It's really kind of um, being able to switch and adjust um, with that. Let's see. And so then, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did that for a while, but it wasn't really a stable job because I was just teaching adjunct. Um, so I also applied to small liberal arts colleges as well. And I had some interviews at that time. Um, and that was very eye opening to me <laughs> as well. Uh, so I went to like some really amazing places like Smith College, which has a really active research program. Um, and I wasn't offered a position there. Um, but I think, you know, it was a really amazing environment to kind of check out and see. Um, I went to another small liberal arts college um, who had no animal research. And so then they proposed to give me two offices that I would have to, you know, change into a vivarium. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah with, and then the, the offer came through and my startup amount was like $10,000. Wow. <laughs> like, I can't even get a computer for that amount, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> So that was like, oh, this is like, so then I yeah. started to learn like the restrictions you have based on what type of a university you're at as to yeah. like, as, like what kind of research you can do, what funding you can get. Um, and then at, during that time too, I had my daughter. So then I had my, my son and my daughter. Um, so that was, you know, that was nice to have that time to spend with them when my schedule wasn't like too overwhelming and I was mainly teaching. Um, but then, you know, after a while, kind of teaching the same thing over and over again, um, like at the Honors College, you know, I love teaching the class I was teaching. I still teach the same class now and it's my favorite class to teach. Uh, but, it, you know, at the time it was, you know, every year or every section, every semester, it was just a different group of students, but the same thing. Yeah. And, you kind of feel like a robot. <laughs> so you have to like infuse new things in there. But yeah. for me, um, I was losing some of the excitement for the field and just teaching all the time. And so I began to realize that, you know, I really love research and I really missed it. And it was like, I wasn't really, I was happy, but I wasn't as happy as I could be if I was actually doing research. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So at that time I had a student in one of my classes uh, who was doing a, a project in a research lab at Scripps uh, Research Institute, which was on the same campus as FAU. And he was just like saying all these amazing things about this professor he was working with <laughs> during oh. drug work. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know, I need to check out that lab. And so that's kind of how I started to transition to go um, back to the beginning again and, you know, do another postdoc. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I applied for Scripps Research to work with Paul Kenny. Um, I interviewed him with him and um it was funny because he kind of thought I was overqualified he's like well you're already a professor you're kind of overqualified <laughs> and I'm like I'm like not I'm like underqualified because I haven't been doing <laughs> research for so many years you know <laughs> yeah it's like different perspectives of the same right? CV <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um so yeah so we met and we really kind of just hit it off um he had children the same age as my children and he you know was very much like family first uh that kind of thing make your own schedule and I found out at that point that actually I was a better mom <laughs> when I was able to do research because then I was able to spend 
a lot more quality time with my kids yeah. as opposed to quantity time. And for me personally, um, I just excelled at more of the quality time when it was, you know, uh, not all day, every day. It was, you know, for me, I just had to have that intellectual stimulation, that scientific inquir- inquiry and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So then I, uh, I went and went off to work with him uh, for my postdoc. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I like there's so many themes that like <laughs> that, like jump out to me when you're like telling your story. But like the fact that you're you know able to just kind of jump into any different kind of position and research is pretty incredible. It's like there's a lot of fearlessness and being able to go from like one to prairie voles to then to, you know, human tissue dissections and then start going into teaching and then return back and go into a drug addiction model. It's just your ability to kind of navigate all these different uh, fields is pretty, pretty incredible. <laughs> I don't know if it's fearless or just like a naivete that like, oh yeah, I can do that. <laughs> it's a fine oh, line yeah. between what those are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But exactly. both are good, both have good outcomes for you. It's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny too because the project that Paul put me on was to develop this intravenous self-administration model for mice with nicotine. And a couple labs could do it with other drugs of abuse, but nobody had gotten it with nicotine. Well, yeah. I had no idea. I didn't know that. I used to <laughs> that. <laughs> so I just come in there and he says, Well, this is what you're gonna do. And I was like, All right, yeah, let's do it. And so, you know, I would come in, like my schedule would be like come in at five in the morning, someone to leave at like two, three to pick up my kids from school. Wow. Um, and I was just like heart, you know, just do it. And um, he would come down and, you know, I was his second official postdoc, but sometimes he'll call me his first postdoc. <laughs> so, um, but he would, you know, he would actually come down and like train me on how to do surgeries. And, wow. uh, you know, so I was very lucky to have, you know, his support there and his uh, expertise and that kind of thing. And he, I remember when I first started, he showed me this graph and it was like, all right, well, I've been running these animals and they were doing really good and they kind of like tapered off. And then he's like, and then my son was born like on this day. (laughs) And so I was like, I was late in running the animals. And I think he had been running them like during the, um, with the light cycle on. And then he's like, Uh, it was, I was late. And so I had to come in like in the middle of the night to run them. And then like, you know, I started doing that because my kids would be up all the time. And so then the, the behavior got a little bit more stable. Right. And so then mm-hmm. he, at that point, that's when we like switched the light cycle in the room. Right. Right. It was like these little like and I think that's so much how science is when you're troubleshooting. It's like it's these random things happen, you know, like the birth of his son. <laughs> and then like that, like, you know, feeds into his like scientific protocol and yeah. like something new out and that kind of thing. So, um yeah, so years later, uh, I was at a conference, and so uh, Paul had worked with George and uh, George Koob, and so George Koob, uh, who's director of NIAAA, came up, and he said, you know, oh, Christy, this is great. You know, I just want to let you know that there's, you know, a lot of uh, prior postdocs, like, dead on the side of the road behind you, <laughs> just because, <laughs> like, all these other postdocs had tried to do this and failed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think the difference was actually, it was just like my, I was naive and I was, he just said like, oh, this is what you're going to do. And I was like, all right, yeah, let's just go do it. You know, and like this ability to just say, yeah, we can make it happen. We'll figure it out. Um, and not applying like prescribed ideas of like rat self-administration to mice, yeah. which a lot of other people had done previously. Um, and that maybe that led to some of those hurdles they had in the past. So yeah, yeah. And a lot of persistence. Isn't there? <laughs> I know I've I've seen people, you know, pick up uh 
nicotine self-administration and it is very difficult to, <laughs> to do. So, I mean, especially in mice. And I give every piece of credit to you to me knowing anything about mouse intravenous self-administration. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things where people don't believe it. It's possible. And so... <laughs> You know, after I left Paul's lab, somebody was having, you know, problems doing it. I'm like, look at my raw data. It's all it's all there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then like once they get, once you, well, you know, because you know how to do IV surgery. So once they get it in the vein and they're like, wow, it is possible, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you got to get them to the point to where they can like get it in the vein and complete the surgery. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, I could do it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Overcoming that self-doubt hurdle, I think, is really important. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So, so in Paul Kenny's lab, you established this um, intravenous nicotine self-administration model in mice. Um, and then um, how exactly do you kind of apply that paradigm to your research questions? Yeah. Yeah. So Paul had had some knockout mouse models um, of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And, you know, he's like, oh, these are the three lines I have in the lab and we want to apply it and see if they differ in self-administration. Um, and at the time, it was just, he was just like, well, pick one. <laughs> so I was like, well, alpha five sounds kind of fun. <laughs> I don't know why. But I was like, let's just do that one. And he's like, okay, let's do it. Um, anyway, so we did it and we found these like really exciting data and that we see a increase in self-administration at these doses, at doses that a wild type mice would have a seizure and just stop taking the drug. These animals kept taking it. Um, and then after we had been working on the project for maybe a year or so, um, uh, uh, different investigators started coming out from humans showing that uh, aleic variation in this gene was related to nicotine dependence in humans. And so that was a moment of like synergy of like, it was kind of almost a moment of like, are we being scooped or is this good? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like this is either devastating or really amazing, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it ended up being really amazing because then we were able to link it to like the brain region involved and, um, you know, the kind of the underlying mechanism of neurotransmitter release and that kind of thing. And so getting at that molecular mechanism of what's, you know, happening in humans and being able to apply it, um, that was really exciting for us. And so that led to kind of our, you know, our big publication that, you know, really uh, was, you know, an amazing experience to be able to do that and to kind of put it all together and see like, um, you know, I think Paul was amazing or he's amazing in that he can see things like from so many different perspectives mm -hmm. and kind of identify, oh, there's a gap here. Let's do this study. There's a gap here. Let's do this study. Um, and I'm like, no, we're done. We're done. Let's publish. Like, one more thing, you know, and then when it, when it all gets put together, it's like this brilliant thing that he is, you know, kind of come, come through with based on, you know, being able to look at things from all these different perspectives and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, that was one of the things I learned from him is being able to do that a little bit. I, don't, I still don't do it as well as he does it, <laughs> you know, being able to, you know, really apply that uh, to the research question to really yeah. get an exciting kind of a perspective um, within it. Yeah, that's awesome. So how did you kind of uh, make the decision from going from scripts to then, um, you know, choosing UCI or ask kind of how did it go establishing your research program there? Yeah, so I um, 
so I had applied for NRSA there. So um, Paul supported me with that. Uh, and so for the postdoctoral NRSA, and I had gotten a score that was like really in the gray area to where it was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have to resubmit, but now it's, you know, the time clock is always against you. Right. Um, so I called up the program officer and I had said, uh, Hey, listen, you know, this is a score I got. And, you know, these were the comments of the reviewers and they're all like hundred percent addressable. And I even had some preliminary data that I collected since I had submitted the grant that, you know, know, um, validated some of the things that the reviewers had questions about. And so um, I talked to the program officer. She said, well, let me look at, let me look at you. And so then she pulls up my, you know, um, profile, I guess, in the area comments yeah. or that. Um, <laughs> and so she says, oh, well, oh, this is really great. So you've already had an RSA as a graduate student. I was like, well, yeah, yeah. And she's like, well, that's great because we really like to, um, you know, keep people in kind of the track once they've mm-hmm. received early on funding. And so because of that, you know, she went back and I got a second kind of look at my application um, and it passed through, right? By the skin of its teeth, but it passed through and that's all that matters. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so then my NRSA was awarded. And so then uh, from that, then I wanted to, I applied, uh, they came out with the new grant mechanism, the K99R00, that tells you how old I am. (laughs) So at the time that was like brand new, right? I think I I applied to like the second time it was, there was a call for applications. And um, so I applied for that. And I remember being, you know, postdoc in the vivarium, like sitting on the floor, (laughs) you know, telling, you know, my friend next, to me because we're waiting on our animals to finish um, you know, like I don't know what I'm going to do if this doesn't hit like I, I don't I think I, I'm gonna you know open a bakery or something I don't know what I'm gonna do right <laughs> um and there's just that like you just unknown you know that pressure to get mm-hmm. to that next step but that unknown if you're ever going to make it to that next step which is very um stressful and exciting and you know you just don't know and so then um, so I had gotten my score uh, when I was I was actually at a conference and I got my score and I was super excited and, and it was funny because it was like a 13, which is like a bad luck score. Right? It's a bad number. <laughs> but I was like, oh my gosh, it's a 13. And then I remember like I went to, to go get my hotel room and I was like on the 13th floor and I was like, this is a sign. <laughs> you, know? you come up with those things in your brain. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah. So then at that point, I was like, well, maybe this is something I really can do. You know, this is something I can really achieve. And one of my hesitations when I was a graduate student as to why I didn't want to be a research one faculty was because um, I had seen women at my institution that had children and were professors. And I saw how hard it was for them that, you know, it was a struggle, like picking up their kids from school, having FaceTime with their lab. Um, It was hard. And, you know, I was like, these these women are like crazy. They're doing it all, (laughs) you know, and I, you know, I kind of discounted myself for my abilities. Like I can't possibly do that. Like there, there are these amazing, really strong women and that's not me. How am I going to ever be able to do that? So I just kind of myself there. And, um, at the time I also had other women faculty that, um, You know, this was like earlier on in their careers when they were discriminated against for being a woman and they were judged if they had kids. And, you know, one uh, woman faculty told me that she never even had kids because she knew that it would be the end of her career, uh, which was just really heartbreaking. Right. Um, And another one who was interviewing and at her interview, they said, you know, well, how long are you going to really be in the research lab? Because I know that you're going to want to get pregnant because you just got married. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> and like, that makes you cringe now, but like yeah. back then, that was just normal. That's how things were dealt with. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think I had that self-doubt. I think I had the thing where women kind of, you know, we discount ourselves for something that hasn't happened yet in the future. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I want to have kids, I want to have a family, so I can't possibly do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't know if, if you can do that and have kids in a family, you're not <laughs> yeah. doing it, right? Um, so we don't give ourselves a chance to experience it and show to ourselves that we can do it before telling ourselves that, well, you know, I know I'm not going to be able to do it, so I just won't do it, right? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, something that I've struggled with in my life and my career is to kind of recognize when I'm doing that and be like, wait a second, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a man wouldn't say, well, I'm going to have kids in 10 years, so I'm not going to do this career, you know, yeah. in sense, right? <laughs> Like, why am I saying that? You know, this is more, we're in a more of an equal opportunity phase here. Like, you know, it shouldn't matter if you're a man or a woman, right? Um, and so, yeah, so then, you know, getting the K99, um, having the kids, knowing that, you know, when I was a postdoc, I can make my own schedule. I can, yeah. you know, do well at being a mom. I can also do well with science. That really gave me the confidence to make that jump. Um, and and I also think with that, you know, just the... Um, the realization of giving yourself permission that you can't be perfect all the time with everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's okay. It's okay. Right. <laughs> and so I think, you know, as a mom, I always have mom guilt, you know, Oh, I should be home with my kids more. I should be doing this more. Right. And then when you're home with your kids, you have uh, career guilt, right? Like, yeah. Oh, I should be doing other research study. I should be in the lab. I should be doing this. Right. And there's always like that guilt either way you look at it and I think that's what work-life balance is is saying that a little guilt either way is okay (laughs) you know you're never going to be perfect and that's okay um just so that you you know at the end of the day you can say well I did my best um and that's what matters and you know I tried my best that's the best that I can do right and so, um, yeah, and so then I applied to a lot of different places. I interviewed a lot of different universities. Um, and, you know, I was really, I had those things that I really wanted. Like, what am I going to fight for, right? Looking at a research facility um, or research you know, position. And one of the things I really wanted to fight for was my vivarium space, because I knew that mm-hmm. the behavior was the workhorse of my research. And I yeah. needed space in the vivarium. I need a lot of space in the vivarium to do well with my experiments and be productive. Um, And the other thing that I was looking for was looking, you know, I wanted to be somewhere that was highly collaborative, um, that was, you know, would be welcoming to me as a woman with a family um, and, you know, and that they acknowledged me for who I was and that was okay and that there was mechanisms in place that were going to be supportive for me. Um, and I also wanted to be someplace I felt like I can make a difference, that things would, um, things were expanding and growing, and I can be part of that expansion and that growth to make an overall impact, not only like in my department, but on campus as well. And so, um, and then finally, I guess the final thing was I wanted someplace that was, uh, that could you know, had a really strong graduate student population to where I could graduate, you know, recruit amazing graduate students into my lab. Um, And so applying that kind of equation of what were my priorities to all the places I looked at, um, I really came up with like two main offers that I really really was excited about. Um, One was in New York and one was in California at UCI. And so my husband said, well, I'll move anywhere with you except California or New York. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, so then the conversation came, well, what's the worst of the two evils, you know? <laughs> what's the less bad place? Yeah. Um, but he's very supportive. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, he was uh, worried about um, earthquakes in California. So yeah. he got out the geological maps. And I was like, well, UCI is not on the fault zone. So we're going to be okay. <laughs> you know? Um, although when we were interviewing here for the position, uh, you know, they, they have you bring out your family, or your husband, and uh, there was like a minor earthquake when we were here. And I was like, oh, of course. No, no. <laughs> but it just like kind of shook a little bit. And we're like, well, that wasn't too bad. Right. So it, was, it ended up being a good thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up at UCI. They they had very uh, family-friendly policies. It was at a time when they were recognizing that men and women were getting paid differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't just, oh, whoops, they're getting paid differently. But it was, what are we going to do about it? Why is this happening? Let's do some research to investigate it. Let's, you know, equal the pay of, you know, men and women to make, you know, to acknowledge that there's been these systemic inequities historically, um, and we can adjust for it now. And so yeah. uh, for me, that was really amazing that they would acknowledge that they would make strides for that um and then also it was a minority serving institute and i think that's really important that it was you know recognizing the community that uci is in you know in california in the state of california we have a very high minority population and saying that these are the taxpayers these are the people that we're serving and we need our field to be more representative of the people in the general population um and so having that commitment to diversity and not just you know, diversity, people of different backgrounds, but diversity in like perspectives and diversity mm-hmm. of where people come from and having, you know, people of, you know, various, you know, socioeconomic levels and various yeah. you know um, types of prior training and that kind of thing, uh, whether it's at a, you know, a liberal arts college or like a big university and, you know, we're not a you know, not being like this, just Ivy League pipeline, right? Um, But really, you know, (laughs) people are coming from different places, and they have strengths that they can offer, um, and acknowledging that, I think. And so I think that, you know, that that was why I ended up choosing UCI. Um, And and honestly, being here, it's like a beautiful, it's amazing. (laughs) You know, you know, you were here, it's very highly collaborative. um, And it's highly supportive. And we have new initiatives on campus with, you know, the end racism initiative. uh, And, you know, where it's really going above and beyond the status quo to really, you know, acknowledge that there's systemic barriers and systemic inequities, and to really implement change to, Mm -hmm. you know, to be at the, you know, progressive front of doing that and making it a, you know, a better kind of environment for everybody because everybody works well when there's a high level of diversity and different perspectives and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It seems like there's a big theme of, um, you know, the correct kind of support and mentoring. And like, I think that's really important to highlight for like how people and also just women can be successful in science. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it's hard, right? Because there's a lot of times there's not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, PIs that maybe you like associate with, you're like, oh, I see myself in them, right? And I, I didn't really have that many. I mean, there was, you know, some of them at, you know, where my graduate place, but their experiences were so different from mine in, in going through, you know, the things that they had done. And, um, but I, I drew from them on some of their strengths and their mm-hmm. like, their fearlessness, I think, is what empowered me a bit. And so, for example, um, one of the professors, she came there with her husband, um, and this had to have been like the 60s or 70s, but they both were recruited at the same time. They both had research labs at the same time. Um, 
but that even though they were recruited separately based on their research, um, you know, her office was like the secretary office of his, you know, his main office, right? And it's like, well, it's, it's a little strange. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on the on their floor that they had their research labs, um, you know, on the bottom floor where there's classrooms, there was bathrooms for men and women. But as you got up to the higher levels, every additional floor, they only had bathrooms for men because men wow. were the only scientists, right? Um, up to that point. And so oh, yeah. that um and so she took her black Sharpie <laughs> and she went to that bathroom door and she put a W-O and made it a woman's room <laughs> on her floor, you know, and it's That's just that, incredible. You know, no, and, and who's who's gonna tell her no? Like you, yeah. you know, at that point they can like you know you know complain about it, but like what power yeah. do they have to tell her that that's a men's room and you gotta go ha- use the restroom on the first floor down the elevator with the students? You know, yeah. when all the male researchers can use you know restrooms on every other floor. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so like you know, I think the and I think the because um, oftentimes I think as a woman you often see other women as being like harsh or domineering or mm-hmm. gritty just because they had to like go through all these struggles to get to where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I, but I think the power in, you know, having women sh- like this, like share their experiences, um, it makes you recognize that, you know, you have that power within you too, and you have that strength. And so I think for me anyways, that was, you know, a really a source of empowerment and, um, you know, saying that, you know, maybe that doesn't happen nowadays, but what is happening nowadays that we can change for the next generations, you know, yeah. because, um, you know, when you're in the situation, you might not always realize the inequity or uh, what's going on. And so, you know, being able to take a step back and say, you know, wait, this is not right. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. We should change this. Where's my black Sharpie, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> being able yeah. to do that, I think is, you know, important, not just, for, and again, it's not for yourself, but it's for, it's for the community. It's for, you know, others that are going through similar struggles as well or having difficulty. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's something nowadays that we're seeing uh, with accessibility and people who have uh, disabilities is that a lot of our uh, universities or just science in general is not set up for people with disabilities. And so that's, you know, something that I've been noticing and trying to do my best to comment on. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was at ACNP conference and that was something that they were, you know, they're trying to actively address. And it's not something that's completely, you know, um, you know, obvious. And so, for example, mm-hmm. to get onto the stage, the main speaker stage, there was no wheelchair ramp, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, luckily, all, this, all the speakers could walk up the yeah. ramp. But what if there was somebody who needed a wheelchair ramp at the main stage? They had, they had no access, right? Um, and you can't, like, oh, let's just get some guys to pick up, you know? Like, that's yeah. demoralizing yeah. <laughs> for that individual, right? Um, yeah. But even it's, you know, I hosted a, um, a women's event, Picture of Scientists, which I recommend everybody mm-hmm. uh, that movie um but I hosted that and it was this dean's distinguished lecture and so the dean was very supportive of doing that and giving us a venue and the space to explore these um you know these thoughts and ideas of how to you know change things going forward um but then the staff like setting up the stage uh they just put like chairs up and I'm like um like can we get a table yeah. <laughs> 
we get a table that has like a tablecloth on it because like I'm wearing a skirt yeah. <laughs> you know, up on stage and like people don't think about that like not you exactly. know, you know women may be wearing clothing that maybe you know um having just a chair open in the middle of the stage is not perhaps you know the best circumstance for the audience yeah. <laughs> or them uh but just like little things like that that you don't even yeah. notice like starting to notice those things and starting to say something and change and getting more people to think about um these things so that you know, a woman who is speaking on the stage, maybe in the future, won't feel as awkward um, being in that setting, um, you know, so feeling lesser because of, you know, the wardrobe choices that she chose for that day or whatnot. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's uh, like a great message of like, you know, empowerment and advocacy in academia and research and how like, just having the confidence to be able to do those things makes such a bigger impact for everyone else in the future. So like to yeah. not be afraid to be that person because you're helping <laughs> so many people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think it's something that comes with time too. Like as in faculty, you know, as your pre-tenure, you know, mm-hmm. it's like you get fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't rock the boat. So, like you see things, but you don't want to rock the boat, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's like, the, I think that's, you know, something that being a tenured woman faculty, like being able to um, address some of these things. And I mean, those, yeah. you know, those are two things that maybe, you know, um, are not the most important things <laughs> that can be addressed, but being able to, you know, speak up and advocate, I think is important. Yeah. And I think that's one one of the other things about UCI is that I've had um, they brought in people who are doing like uh, culturally aware mentorship training mm-hmm. or leadership training, uh, and so being able to navigate that space of like awkwardness, yeah, <laughs> like hey wait can we change this you know, um, y- you know when you're really calling them out on something that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really like why didn't you think about this right. Um, yeah. Being able to do it tactfully and that yeah. it's not you know. Um, blaming or pointing figures but it's really like a like let's just make this a better space for other people you know uh yeah. and doing there. so no that sounds really great I'd love to hear more about that later <laughs> but maybe we could do that at uh my institution too it sounds like a great kind of training and resource <laughs> um great so you know we get to hear all about how you've kind of established your lab and um uh, why you kind of were attracted to going to UCI in the first place. So now as a tenured professor, I guess, I know you have a lot of different um, kind of projects in your lab, but I guess um, what are some that are kind of going on now that um, I guess they're all of interest to you, but um, <laughs> uh, a few in the remaining time we have, I guess, that are kind of nice to highlight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think it's, um, so I think science is one of those things to where like, what you're doing now is so much more exciting than what you publish. (laughs) So I I had uh, my department chair, so Marcelo, uh, Mm -hmm. asked me like, oh, what are some papers you want to highlight? You know, and I'm like, but but what I'm doing now is more exciting than, you know, like that mindset of like you finish a project and you're like, now what what, what can I do? Um, But we're getting some really cool data. So when I started the lab at UCI, um, I was challenged with this grant, which was the uh, NIDA Avenir Award. And the idea of this funding was to come up with an idea that was out of the box, that was maybe possibly likely, but could fail, right? So high risk, high reward. Um, and to put together an application and convince a panel of, you know, NIH reviewers, like you're standing in front of like these 10 people that what your idea is could be something really exciting and transformative. Um, and so then uh, with that, 
funding, I got up there and I, um, well, I, first of all, I, so I read a lot of different fields broadly and I, you know, tried to kind of narrow in where, what was, what were, what was happening in other fields that might actually be having in neuroscience that would be really cool to think about. And so then that's how I um, got on to extracellular vesicles. And so these are little vesicles that are released by one cell and taken up by another cell. And when I started off, most of the research was in the field of cancer, which makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So cancer is releasing these RNA molecules that are then going and affecting other cells and leading to metastasis and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually transformative for the cancer field because they thought originally that the cells themselves were like sprouting off and going and doing these things. But this research had shown that these vesicles that were being secreted could actually do this. Um, And so I started thinking about, well, maybe this is something that's normal, normally happening between cells in the brain. And there was some evidence, all of it was basically in vitro showing that, um, you know, cells can release vesicles that contain RNA, they get taken up by other cells. Um, But in in vitro conditions, you know, there's experimenters are putting other things in there so they're putting growth factors cells do things that they wouldn't normally do so they form these microtubules between those cells and stuff and um so you know my challenge with that was to look and see in the context of drug addiction are cells you know releasing vesicles and um is this actually happening in the brain when you have all these really diverse cellular populations? Uh, so I started on this project early in my career, um, but as was the challenge <laughs> before me, uh, you know, technology wasn't quite advanced enough to allow us to do things. Um, and so uh, every year, like technology is getting better and better and better. And so we're at the point now where we have these really exciting um, transgenic mice and it's through collaboration with Steve Gold at Johns Hopkins University. Um, And we can visualize uh, vesicles being released from cells in vivo. Uh, And so this is really exciting to us. So we crossed this reporter line. It's a Cree-driven reporter line um, with, well, it's not kind of a reporter, but it has a um, MEN green fluorescence marker that's tagged to CD81, which is a marker on the outside of the extracellular vesicle. Mm-hmm. And so we crossed them with a dopamine um, transporter Cree line, so the DAC Cree line. And so what we've been able to show is that uh, dopamine cells in the brain, in the ventral tegmental area, make extracellular vesicles. They release these vesicles into the extracellular environment. Uh, when we administer something that activates the axon terminal, in this case, it's nicotine, we actually see an increased release of vesicles into areas such as the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal yeah. cortex. Um, and so that's really exciting to us. So now we're looking to see, well, what's in those vesicles? <laughs> what RNA is it? Where's it going? Um, and really it, it kind of like, gives you this idea of, you know, RNA, mRNA from one cell can be transported and have protein in a different cell. And we identify cells based on their proteins that they express. So, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, whatever type of cell you want to call it. It's a nicotinic receptor cell. It's a cholinergic cell, but it's based on like what they expressed. And so this you know, this kind of turns that on its head and that what it's expressing could come from another cell. It could come from a glial cell. It could come from another neuron. Um, So that's really exciting to us. So that's kind of what we've been working on. That's we're at a point now where we're making really cool progress just because we have some collaborators in place that are able to allow us to visualize with super high resolution microscopy, um, these vesicles in these different brain regions following um, exposure to drugs of abuse and that kind of thing. And so, 
um, I think that's really exciting. I think it's a new way of thinking for the field. You know, when I was an undergrad, I was never told that even extra rascals were a thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's so, you know, I was like, so you have, you know, these are the methods of communication. So you have hormonal, you have action potentials, and you have neurotransmitters across the synaptic cleft. And so this is like the fourth way of uh, cell communication within the yeah. brain. Um, so it's been really cool to kind of be at the edge. It's been also yeah. a struggle to be at that edge because there's a lot of um, companies that get on board and make products that aren't actually doing what people think they're doing. So, mm. for example, there's products where they're touted as isolated neuron vesicles from the blood, um, but the markers that they're using are also expressed in peripheral tissues that we know release extracellular vesicles too. <laughs> helpful <laughs> yeah right right so you have this like kind of this flood of the field of like miscommunication misinformation uh, yeah. on, on the technique that these companies are you know um, promoting that scientists are just kind of believing yeah uh, and you know I, when I, I so now I'm going back to like when I was doing MS research I want to be sure what I'm seeing is like real right yeah. Um, yeah and so then because it's so super exciting to me uh and so then that's been our challenge is that like we want to make sure it's really right before we publish it and go forward yeah. we're getting some really cool things and um I thought that was just even mind-blowing the idea that vesicles can be released from a dopaminergic cell and it could have such huge implications on the drug addiction you know research field so yeah yeah no I was curious I'm curious about that in terms of just like as a concept for um that kind of communication like why like what what, what is the kind of time scale that that happens and like why why is it why is that one necessary if there's right those other kind of forms, I guess? Yeah, yeah awesome right. questions. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. it's, it's carrying RNA versus something that's initiating things that will eventually lead to RNA potentially. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, there's also, they've been shown that there's also different like enzymes and whatnot associated okay. with um, epigenetic mechanisms and that kind of thing cool. as well. And so yeah. I think, yeah, it's a way to alter protein expression or gene expression yeah. in these cells um, if they're not connected by synaptic, you know. Yeah. Um, but when you look at it, too, in the microscope, there's like there's so many and you're like, wow, wow. you know, <laughs> like how, this is insanity. You know, but I think <laughs> most of science is, you know, that and that you like you think, you know, something and then you distill it down into a textbook. This is what we know. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you you go up and you do research or you teach it and you're like, well, yeah, there's an exception. <laughs> right? yep. so, well, maybe we thought we knew what we knew, but we really don't know. Right. <laughs> Um, science is always more complicated than we want it to be, I think. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I just have one more question. Sure. Uh, we usually end uh, by asking kind of what are the activities that you like to do outside of lab? Oh, I have all the time. <laughs> I do have to say that I find a lot of enjoyment and stress relief in like being at the bench and like running animals. So I know that sounds like completely ridiculous, but that is one of my stress relief mechanisms to do research. <laughs> but outside of that, um, I, I love where I live. I love that the um, Crystal Cove Beach is like five minutes away. So I do go to for walks a lot. It Crystal Cove. The water is very cold.
cold. Yes. <laughs> yeah. on the East Coast, the West Coast is super cold. Um, yes. My brother just visited me for the first time um, last weekend. We, there was a wedding in San Diego, um, yeah. and he wanted to go in the ocean. So I have to admit that I have been recently swimming in the ocean. <laughs> it was freezing. <laughs> but we had fun jumping waves uh, like we do. The waves are much bigger on this coast as well. So, yes. um, yeah, the last one I got tossed with, and I was like, okay. Oof. I'm done. <laughs> like my ankle is bleeding. I'm done. Oh, <laughs> but uh, I never was much of a surfer. So I think a lot of people out here like to surf and I'm just not that um, athletically inclined. <laughs> so jumping waves is about as good as I get. So yeah. Right. Well, that sounds nice. And yeah. walking along the beach sounds wonderful too. It's good to have those mental health things and spending time with my kids, of course, and yeah. uh, you know, getting ready for uh, to see their costumes and trick and treating. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's coming yes, up. Yes, it is Halloween. That's it's Halloween. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure when this is released, but today's Halloween. That's why I refer to <laughs> trick or treating. It's not a normal like middle. <laughs> the summer thing <laughs> cool well thank you so much I really appreciate uh you you. Time to talk with me yeah thanks Rianne and um I hope one day I get to hear your story on when uh, being interviewed by somebody else so oh, thank you <laughs> no it's uh you've done amazing things as well so I really appreciate uh being able to talk with you but, yeah oh thank you <laughs>